Psalm 144. I believe that is on page 978 in the Pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible. Psalm 144, verses 1 through 15. This is the living, active word of the Lord, so pay careful attention. Of David, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this point in our worship service to bow and incline our hearts at your feet. Lord, to hear from your word, to bring our cares to you and to be instructed by you, to know how we might live today and this week. So Lord, I ask that you would Open our hearts to your word. Make us attentive to it. Holy Spirit, I pray that as the new covenant promise is, that you would take your word and that you would write it on our hearts as we hear from you this morning. And so, Lord, transform us now and bless us this time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is Memorial Day weekend, and the purpose of Memorial Day, as you all know, is to remember all of those who have served, served in the armed forces and to remember especially those who have given their lives and fallen in combat, defending the freedoms that you and I enjoy. And I don't know about you, if you have any family or friends that have served in the armed forces, but I do. I have a father 
who served in the armed forces during the Vietnam era. And so this is a time when I always try to make sure that I let him know that I appreciate the sacrifice that he's made in giving a few years of his life to go and serve our country. And as I began to think about this Memorial Day weekend, and as I began to think about standing in front of you and sharing from God's word, I got to thinking to myself, I wonder what the most memorable battle is or the memorable, um, milita- most memorable military encounter is today that is in living memory. In living memory. I think we can read history and read about all kinds of what appear to be glorious battles. But the one that came to my mind, that probably is the most significant battle of living memory, is D-Day. June 6th, 1944 as the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, trying to take the beach and trying to uh, redeem France, if I can say it that way, from Germany. We've all seen the footage of men jumping off of those barges into the water and many falling into the water, many falling on the beach. It's a horrid sight. And it's a horrid thought to think about. But aside from D-Day, the the exact opposite that we think about is V-Day. V-Day was May 8th, 1945, when the Axis forces in Europe surrendered to the Allies. And I always think about when I think of V-Day and I think of all the celebrations that came at the end of World War II, Uh, probably none is more vivid or sweet in my mind as a sailor returning home and the parades in Times Square. You've seen the picture where the sailor grabs that girl, looks like she's dressed like a nurse of some kind, and he's kissing her. And as the story goes, apparently they didn't even know each other. Apparently she was the wrong woman, but not really who he was looking for, but he kissed her nonetheless, and it was a happy moment. Victory was secured. On V-Day. But one thing that becomes obvious for any of us living today is V-Day was not the ultimate victory. There's still a battle going on, isn't there? There's still a war. There's still a victory to be had that we don't enjoy yet today in its fullness. And I believe that that victory will come when Jesus Christ returns for the second time. But until that time, we're left waiting, aren't we? And I believe that this passage that, as the superscription says, is written by King David, of Psalm 144, is a psalm that is looking forward to a victory that even David had not yet had the opportunity to celebrate. Now, I just want to say one word before we jump into our passage this morning, and it's that this passage comes, if you notice anything about the Psalter, it's breaking down, broken down into five books. Book one, two, three, four, and five. And if you notice, this particular psalm comes in book five, which most uh, scholars believe was organized by Jewish religious leaders after the time of the Babylonian exile. And so think about it. 
these people had seen the devastation of Babylon of, of Jerusalem by Babylon in AD 70. They just went through 70 years of exile, living as strangers in a foreign land in a different culture where no one seemed to understand them. And now they've returned to their land and they've expected the kingdom to be, to be ushered in with celebration and with praise and with triumph and with pomp. And yet, you read some of the post-exilic books of the Old Testament and things didn't quite work out the way that the Jews expected. They were yet waiting for the kingdom, even after coming back to the land. This waiting is something I think we can connect to because we're looking forward to something too. We're looking forward to that ultimate V-Day. We're looking forward to the kingdom being ushered in. And I believe that that's the main point of this psalm this morning. And it's this. If I were to like, try to get it to a crisp idea, we look forward to the kingdom... By doing three things, by praising God, by praying to God, the things that are on our hearts, and by singing to the Lord. Those three things are kind of the contours of this particular psalm this morning and will form the basic outline that we have before us. So let's begin with our first point, praising the Lord in verses 1 and 2. Look with me again, if you've closed your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up. And let's look at 1 and 2 again. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and in he in whom I take refuge. Why? Because he is the one who subdues peoples under me. We find David in verse 1 praising God for the training and the preparation that he's given him. Notice the military language of verse 1. Blessed be my rock. Why? Because my rock, the Lord, trains my hands for war. Trains my fingers for battle. That word trains is a participle, which means it is an ongoing word. In David's life, in the Old Testament... It's not like he just became king and all of a sudden he was this warrior who had it all together. The Lord continually trained David for a life of war. In fact, at the end of his life when he wants to build the temple, uh, one of the prophets comes to David and says, you will not be the one to build the temple. Why? Because you are a man of war. You are a man of bloodshed. And this is something that was ongoing in the life of David. You know, David doesn't come across to me as the, the warrior type when you read his story. Yes, he had a lot of wars, he had a lot of battles, but when you look at his origin in 1 Samuel 16, David is, is the youngest of seven sons. All of his older brothers, when they were being paraded before the prophet Samuel, when he's looking for the new king, they're looking at, at how handsome David's oldest brothers were, how, how tall and muscular and athletic looking they were. And he thought, surely this must be the king. God says, don't look at their outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. I, the Lord, search the heart. And where do we find David in 1 Samuel 16? Uh, doing what his older brothers didn't want, him, didn't want to do themselves and probably made him do because they didn't want to do it. 
David, go out and watch the sheep in the field. Doesn't seem like the warrior type to me. But we read in 1 Samuel 17, he actually kills Goliath. We're all familiar with that story. And then in 1 Samuel 18, Saul puts him to work. And David becomes the commander of the armies of Israel, and he leads them out battle after battle after battle against his enemies. And the Lord continues to give David outstanding victories. But this, this education in warfare was not something that he learned all at once. It was something that was ongoing. And so David praises the Lord for the preparation that he had given him. But then, in verse 2, he praises him for deliverance over the enemies. Look at me at verse 2. Look at, notice the uh, military language, the language of weapons and warfare, and notice how David uses the possessive personal pronoun, my. Look at every single one of those in verse 2. Who is the Lord? My steadfast love. Why? Because he's called me and made me king. He's my fortress. He's my stronghold. He's my deliverer. He's my shield in whom I take refuge. What's interesting to me is many of those, those uh, weapons of warfare are defensive weapons, aren't they? Uh, a fortress is something you hide behind. A stronghold, very similar. A shield is something you hide behind as well. And yet, this is the very thing that the Lord is for David. And notice how it ends. Who subdues peoples under me. You know, this my, my, my language implies that David had a very personal, very intimate relationship with this covenant God who called him to be the king of Israel. In fact, in 1 Samuel 7, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, God calls David and makes a covenant relationship with him. That's the nature of the relationship. That's why David can say that God is all these things to him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, immediately after making a covenant with David, what does David do? David goes to war. In fact, you see exactly what he's saying here at the end of verse 2. God subdues the peoples under him. These are the, listen to the list of nations that David conquered by the help of the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 8. David subdues the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians of Zobah and Damascus, which are two different kingdoms. He subdues the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and not that he subdued this king, but the king of Hamath peaceably brought tribute to David. You see, because the Lord was David's shield, because he's his fortress and his deliverer and all these my, my, my statements, David is the recipient of God's grace and God brings all the nations under David's control as king. It's very clear that what David is praising the Lord for in these first two verses is for things that the Lord had already done by the time he wrote this particular psalm. And so 
we need to step back here this morning and we need to actually think about how does this apply to me now and today? Well, we look forward, David's looking forward to something in this entire psalm. And notice what he's doing, he's looking forward by looking back. So what we do is we look forward today to the kingdom of Christ being realized by looking back at what God has already done in each and every one of our lives and for the church universal. Let's unpack this just a little bit. What does it mean to look back at what God has done? Well, it's the fact that we need to realize as we look back that we are still waiting for the kingdom to be established. This is a pattern, isn't it, in Scripture of God and how he deals with his people waiting. I mean, think about how long Abraham and Sarah waited to have Isaac. I mean, he was 100 and she was 90 when they had Isaac. When David gets anointed as king, he's got to wait, I would imagine, maybe 15 years on the run from Saul before the kingdom finally becomes his. And then when the kingdom becomes his, there are all kinds of difficulties that arise because of his own sin. And so the kingdom that he's awaiting in this particular psalm, by the end of his life, he still had not yet seen it. Waiting. When the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile, as I mentioned earlier, they thought that God would establish the kingdom through them. And it didn't happen. And so God's people waited. When Jesus of Nazareth came the first time, born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people were expecting their Messiah. They were expecting the son of David, but they were expecting that Messiah to come and do what? Establish a kingdom in strength and in power. Oh, they were waiting for the day when God would, would establish them with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm as he had done when he brought them out of, out of Egypt. But that wasn't the king that they got at the first coming. And you know, if you ever talk to a Jewish person today, and you ask them if, they, if they're a religious Jewish person, and you ask them, what is the biggest obstacle to you acknowledging and believing that Jesus is your Messiah, what are they going to say? Um, he didn't come and establish the kingdom. He didn't do what the prophets said he was going to do. And so God's people wait. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after the resurrection of Jesus, his disciples say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples are still waiting. And so, brothers and sisters, as we look at this psalm, we know that this psalm applies to us and speaks to us because we are still waiting. Now, as we continue to look forward to the establishment of the kingdom, and as we wait, what does this psalm give us by way of insight? How does it tell us we're supposed to wait? Well, I'll be honest with you, I look at verse 1 when it says that God is my rock who trains my hands for war and trains my fingers for battle. I do see an application there for you and I today as we wait. Because as we wait, let's just be honest, life is full of struggles, isn't it? Have you ever felt like your life is just a, an uphill battle? 
It doesn't matter if it's a battle uh, in your marriage. It could be a battle in your career. It could be a battle with your friends. It could be a battle with depression. It could be a battle with sickness and disease. Life is full of battles. And we may not be storming a beach somewhere like they did in 1944 on D-Day to free uh, an entire country, but we feel like we're struggling no less in an uphill battle where all the odds are stacked against us. And the fact that God continually trained David's hands and fingers for war should tell us, brothers and sisters, that God is still working today through his Holy Spirit and through his word to train my hands and to train your hands for war. But it's a spiritual war, isn't it? It's not a physical war where we're going out killing people. In fact, there are different levels to this struggle. And the first one I want to focus on is the struggle that each and every one of us has with our own sinful nature. By the way, there's going to be three of these, and they just kind of work like concentric circles from the inside out. The first one that I experience and the first one you experience is struggling with your own sinful nature. But we anticipate the coming kingdom of Christ by training ourselves to live in that kingdom now. And that word train comes up in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8. through 8. Paul says this as he encourages a young pastor. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Why? Because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so, as you think about waiting and anticipating the kingdom of Christ coming as you struggle and battle against your own sinful nature day in, day out. Don't forget that this is a time of training for godliness. Once we deal with our own sinful nature, then we're poised and in a better position for our second concentric circle. We can focus on the spiritual battle against the world. Boy, I don't know about you, but like, you can get on social media, you can turn on the TV, you can drive from Elgin, where I drove from this morning, to get here, and you can see billboard signs, and there are all kinds of temptations and attacks that are just hurled at you from the world. Isn't it? I mean, think about how easy some sins are today. It is so easy to slander somebody by posting something on social media about and commenting on something that someone said, and you don't know that person, you've never met that person, but you will certainly say something mean about them or slander them when they're not right in front of you. Think about the availability of internet pornography. Or you don't even need the internet. Some TV shows these days border on things like that. The world is attacking us, brothers and sisters. And just as David said that it was the Lord who subdued the peoples under him, you and I need to ask 
How is God subduing the nations to him today? Because the way that you and I engage in spiritual warfare against the world is tied intimately to what God is doing in the world. So the answer is pretty simple, I think. It's simple, but it's hard to do. How is God subduing the nations around us today? Including those in America. Preaching the gospel. I would add things like church planting locally and foreign missions. As the gospel goes out to the nations, as people hear, and as the Spirit moves in their hearts, and as they believe, sinful people are being brought under the Lordship of Christ. This is exactly what we read about in our assurance of faith, our assurance of, um, of pardon from Romans chapter 5. God takes enemies, and he reconciles them to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, I want you to think through, as a church, as an individual, how do you do battle with the world this week? As you go into your families, some of you may have family members that are not believers, as you go to work and work in environments where you're surrounded by people sinning in all kinds of ways, how do you share the gospel? I want to encourage you as you pray through that to take refuge in the Lord. He is your rock. We live in changing times, brothers and sisters. And for some of us, that's not very comfortable. But remember, the Lord is your rock, and a rock does not move, and a rock doesn't change. Listen to what Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three, as we think about struggling and doing battle with the world. He said this as he's about to go to the cross. He says to his disciples in the upper room, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Christ, the son of David, won the greater war so that you and I might continue to win the small battles in his strength day in, day out, as we have opportunity to share the love of Christ with a dying, sinful, and broken world. And the third one, the third concentric circle, is we do spiritual battle against the devil. I'm not going to read through it, but Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 talks about taking up the armor of God, knowing that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. Look, it's not like when someone is on the opposite side of the political divide from you and they're making you mad because of things that they're doing or the buttons that they're pushing. They are not the enemy. They're the mission field. The enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy is Satan. And so we're called to take up the armor of God. And I love how Paul ends that. He says, pray for me that I might have boldness to open my mouth and proclaim the gospel. So we're back to that evangelism thing again. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the ultimate means by which we fight these battles 
is to begin by praising the Lord for what he's done. Because when you begin to praise the Lord for what he's already done, you do not wallow in despair for what you hope he might do. So verses 1 and 2 show us that praising the Lord is of the utmost in spiritual warfare. But the passage moves on in verses 3 through 8 for our second point, praying to the Lord. So we have praising the Lord, and now we have praising, praying to the Lord. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. We see the beginnings of David's prayer here, and it's the signal of that is the words, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Let's stop there really quick. As we continue to struggle, as we continue to, to battle against our own sinful nature, against the world, against the devil, it is so easy to get discouraged and think, I just simply can't do this anymore. And you can imagine David, as he's praising God, but still struggling, Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? This is the same exact question that came up in Psalm chapter 8. Also written by David. You know what's interesting about that? When it says, what is man that you regard him? The word man there is actually the Hebrew word Adam or Adam. What is Adam that you regard him? That you think of him? And that highlights our our origin as creatures made out of the dirt of the ground because the word Adam is related to the Hebrew word Adama, which means ground. So think about how lowly, how humbling this question really is. Lord, what is man who comes out of the ground, out of the dust that you regard him? And the second question in our English translations uses the same word man, but in Hebrew it's different. Or the son of man that you think of him. And the word for man in that second question is the Hebrew word enosh that means weakness, frailty, fragility. Lord, what is man who is nothing more than the dust of the earth? Who is weak and frail and fragile? You can almost ask David going a step further, who am I as all these things that you think of me? And he describes what that fragility and that weakness is in verse 4. Look, Lord, man is like a breath. Like that. His days are like a passing shadow. Here today, gone a few hours later. Lord, How are we supposed to do this when this is the case? You see, what David is doing, David is acknowledging his proper place in relationship to the transcendence, the strength, and the power, and the glory of God. You see, brothers and sisters, as we think about struggling ourselves through these different spiritual battles that we find ourselves in, as we look forward to a future kingdom, our proper heart our proper frame of mind needs to be oriented to understanding who we really are before a great, awesome, and holy and eternal God. And it's out of the weakness of that prayer that he's 
in verses 5 through 8, we find the prayer for further, and I would say final, deliverance. Take a look at that. Bow your heavens, O Lord. Come down. Touch the mountains that they may smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me, deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners. Why? Because verse 8, their mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. David's request for God is to, for, that God would just come down, rend the heavens, just come down to the earth, and take care of all of the problems that are caused by sin and caused by, therefore, his enemies against him. That's it. By the way, the description of what David wants God to do here is very similar to what God did in Exodus chapter 20 when he took Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 20, 18, after God gives the Ten Commandments, this is what it says. Immediately after God finishes saying the last commandment, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. Why would the people stand far off at Mount Sinai after hearing the law? In fact, they cry out to Moses, let us not hear this voice anymore, lest we, we die. You, you Moses, you go up the mountain. Whatever God tells you, you come down. We'll listen to you. We don't want to hear this voice or see this fire anymore, lest we die. You see, the people... We're standing in the personal presence of God himself as God descended upon the mountain, dare I say, stood upon the earth. Perhaps this is what David had in mind using that kind of language. Lord, I desire you, stop being far away when trouble comes. Don't just sit in heaven on the throne and watch. Come down and help. And so again, we need to take a step back and think about how this applies to us. How do these prayers, the prayer of humility, the prayer for final deliverance, what does this have to do with you and I today? As we continue to look forward to the kingdom by praying, we do this by praying for humility for ourselves. Because let's face it, we all have pride issues. And we pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a day and age that's full of self-help, full of self-reliance. And the more you struggle with your sin, the more you struggle with the world to live the Christian life and be faithful to God in this broken world, and the more we struggle with the devil, the more we realize we simply can't do it on our own strength. But you know, David's question here in verse 3, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? The answer is probably not what you would expect right away. You know what the answer to that really is? The answer is that man is actually much in many respects because of what God has chosen to do. You remember John chapter 1 verse 14? In the gospel of John, the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. What is man, O oh God? What is the dust of the earth that you think of him? Or the weakness of man that you would regard him? You know what it is? 
It's enough for God to look down from heaven and say, I'm going down there. I'm going to answer David's prayer to come down. I'm going to take on their flesh and I'm going to solve their main problem, sin and death. It's a glorious answer to the question of David's prayer. Because Romans 8, 3, Paul says that God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, weakened by sin. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, the father condemned sin in the flesh through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, as we pray for humility, we pray for humility to follow in the train of what Christ has done. How do you you fight your own flesh and sinful nature? By putting it to death. How do you become more Christ-like in a world that seems to be going to pots? By putting your sinful nature to death. Because when you put your sinful nature to death, what happens is God gives you strength through the resurrection of Christ and new life. And we also pray for Christ's return. You see, we have confidence because God has already answered this prayer in part by coming down from heaven. He bowed the heavens. He came down. He did that in the incarnation. Because he did it in the incarnation, we know and we have a a sure promise that he is going to come again a second time. And mark my word, not mark my words, mark scripture's words. That when it says, touch the mountains so that they smoke, flash forth the lightning and scatter them, send out your arrows and rout them, stretch out your hand from on high, that will characterize the second coming of Christ. In Revelation 19, 11 through 21, you, I'm not going to read that, but you have an account of Jesus returning on a white horse. And the result is terrible for those who are outside Christ. It almost fits this description. He will go to war. And he will save his people. You know, I think about those of us today. We live in a world of political, cultural upheaval turmoil. Um, In some places of the world, there's military and economic turmoil. There's hope, brothers and sisters. This world is not our home. Do you, I mean, have you ever like struggled with a disease or seen a family member succumb to something like cancer? Or have you ever lost a job And had economic hardship for a year? Have you ever felt like you've lost everything? I mean, David has felt like that. You read the historical books. David felt like that many times in his life, I'm sure. When he lost children. When he lost parts of the kingdom. When he's running here and there. Has your life ever fallen apart to the point where you're just wondering, 
what is the Lord doing and why am I still here? You know, it's in all those turmoils that God is trying to open our eyes to say, you know what? I'm trying to get you to see. This, this world, these kingdoms are not your home. It's trying to develop a heart in us to long for something more. And the beginning of that longing starts at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Richard Belcher makes an interesting point about this prayer. He says, um, this prayer for deliverance from foreign enemies was fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was put to death by the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans. I love the hymn, Life is Worth the Living Just Because He Lives. That's the point. And that leads us to our last and final point this morning, verses 9 through 15, singing to God. So how do we begin to, how do we wait and look forward to the coming kingdom? We, we start by praising God for what he's already done in Christ Jesus. We begin praying to him through our struggles now. And finally, we sing to God of what will come. Look at verses 9 through 11. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Skip down to verse 10. Why? Because you are the one who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. And then in verse 11, he repeats the prayer that he said in verse 7. I'll sing to you a new song. Why do we need a new song? To contrast the old song. What's the old song? Well, the old song is Exodus 15, the song of Moses. After God redeems Israel from slavery and the bondage of Pharaoh, he calls them out of Egypt. What's the first thing they do when they go through the Red Sea? You have an entire chapter devoted to it in a song. A song that the people sung for God's great redemptive actions in their favor. And because there is a new song that David mentions here, this tells us that there is something that David is yet looking forward to that God is going to do to redeem his people. It anticipates a new covenant redemption. You know, it's interesting when you read the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9 when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John are there, and Jesus is, you know, transfigured, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. Uh, Luke nine thirty one says they were talking with Jesus about his. The ESV translates it departure. The original Greek there is talking about his exodon, his exodus. You see, the death of Jesus Christ was that redemptive act. The resurrection fulfills the, re the rescue that David is calling for from the cruel sword. And Revelation 5, 9-10 records some of the lyrics of this new song that is being sung in heaven. As John gets a vision of the throne room of God and the Lamb seated upon the throne and the elders and the four living creatures... They fall down before the Lamb and they sing a new song. And this is what they said. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see that new song that David is is anticipating, that he's looking forward to singing, is a song of the kingdom that will be sung by all when Christ returns. And I love verses 12 through 15. I'm not going to go into incredible detail there, except to highlight verses 12 through 14. Look at that with me. This is the result of when Christ comes back and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. What's he longing for? What is King David longing for? He's longing to see children have their lives prolonged at a time when children could easily become the victims of war. He's longing to have a job, to put it in modern terms, that is fruitful and that is life-giving. I mean, when he's talking about your granaries being full and your flocks and your herds bearing, multiplying fruitfully, what he's saying is, Lord, prosper the work of our hands. And may we be safe in our cities. These parallel, the covenant blessings that come from Deuteronomy 28. And I want to encourage you this morning. Just as God led Israel out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land, you know what? God led us out of the bondage of our sin to bring us home to a new heavens and a new earth. And it is in that new heavens and that new earth that we will experience the fulfillment of these old covenant blessings and see them. And so as we look at how we apply this finally and fully as to how we look forward to the eschatological kingdom today, we do this by singing to God in thanksgiving for the redemption that he's already accomplished in Christ and for the fact that we will one day walk with him in a world made new. And so I want to encourage you this morning, set your minds on the things that are above. You know, when I read these last few verses of God's work in our families, God's work in our careers, and God's work in bringing safety, it makes me long for a new world. And by the way, when I say that, I don't mean like I'm depressed and I'm despairing of life and I just want to just die. That's not the idea. The idea is more along the lines of it produces in me an anticipation of joy. This says, to live is Christ and to die is gain, like the Apostle Paul said. There is joy to be found in this life when we understand where our true destiny is going to be in the kingdom of Christ. 
I love C.S. Lewis, and I love his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He talks about how he struggled until he came to understand that there was a God. He struggled for years, and he would have these little islands or pockets of joy in his life. Maybe you can relate to that, where, you know, life seems pretty, you know, pretty dreary, um, pretty ho-hum. But every now and then, there are these little pockets of joy in your life that remind you of something. And what C.S. Lewis said is those little pockets of joy that God in his mercy and grace gives you throughout the struggles of this life are there as signposts to point you to a greater joy. It's like going down the road, and as I drive home today, I'm sure I'll see you know, signs for Elgin 20 miles or something like that. Well, the sign is not Elgin. I'm not going to stop along the side of the highway and just look at the sign and be like, oh, that's home. I'm going to keep driving. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. The signs of joy are meant to whet our appetites for the heavenly kingdom. And so I want to ask you, what about you? What do you long for? Are your deepest longings for this world? Or are your deepest longings truly for the kingdom that will come? Because that's the whole point of this passage. We look forward to the kingdom by praising God, by praying to him through the storms of this world, and by singing to him in worship for the answers that he will yet give us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I bet if I walked in down the, up and down the aisles of this church and if I had an hour to spend talking to every person here, Lord, I bet you everybody here is waiting for something. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to whet our appetite for heaven. Lord, yes, we have joy in this life, and yes, we have joy in this world through our careers and through marriages and through our children, but Lord, those are just foretastes of a greater joy that we're going to have with you one day. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to wait for the kingdom, as we struggle against our flesh and the world and the devil, as you continue to train our hands for war, Lord, that you would create in us a longing for when we won't have to fight these spiritual battles anymore. Lord, as we continue to lift up our prayers and we continue to humble ourselves before you and we continue to ask for deliverance, whether it's the little things in life or the big things in life, Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand strong and to hold firm to the victory that Christ has already given us and for us to be encouraged to say, okay, there's a greater victory that will come. That whatever I'm asking for now, it doesn't compare to the tremendous gift of Christ that has already been given to us. And that, Lord, as we anticipate the kingdom, as we hold to these little pockets of joy in this life, that we would long for a greater joy when we can sing to you a new song in the company of all of the angels, of all of the nations, and all of the tribes, and all the peoples, and all the families of the earth. Lord, that... Worship will be a day to remember. And I praise you, Lord, that we'll get to do it forever. Lord, renew our hearts today. Renew our minds. 
renew our affections and fit them and pattern them and prepare them for kingdom life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.